0: And um, I encourage you to put out your worship notes before we get started this morning. I just want to say a couple words about some things on there. Now, understand, the next couple weeks are a great opportunity for for you to be inviting people out to to church. There's just an openness during this time of year, and we need to take advantage of that. And and I just want to take a minute. Here we are in our, our early service, and I just want to thank um, many of you for your investment. You know, we, uh, Center Point Bible Church is... Um, we stepped out by faith and said, you know, we want to reach people in this community. For as long as we're here, we want, to, we want to be used to the Lord to reach people. And We felt like a way that we could do that would be to start doing two services. Let me tell you a couple reasons why we wanted to do that. First of all, when, when you come into a room and there's no seats, then it can be very intimidating. And actually you, you, you feel like I don't want to come back there again. And I know you might look around this morning to see some open seats, but in the second service in the morning, there's very few seats here. And so thank you for your investment for being here. Some of you, it just works for your schedule better. And I understand that many of you are serving during the third hour. And I really appreciate you doing that. That is a real blessing to the, to the church. And I hope it's a, it's an act of worship because as we're going to see today, worship is not about getting, worship is about giving. That's what worship is. We come to God not to get. We come to God to give. He invites us to us to himself. He gives us the privilege of giving. And so for many years we we saw many of you serving the Lord and and you would you would you would take care of our kids, and you would you would watch our children. And, and one of the things that I heard from people is they would say, you know, I really miss being at worship service when I'm when I'm taking care of the children, or when I'm when I'm working here, when I'm doing that, I miss being part of the worship service. And that was a burden to my heart. It really was. And so now many of you are are you're coming to worship. You are standing for folks group, and you're serving, and that is a, that is a blessing. And then there's a whole other group group of you that were here this morning at eight fifteen or or last night. And listen, you give us unto the Lord. You give us unto him. You have an audience of one. The Lord Jesus. We have an audience of one. Now with that being said, there will be some opportunities in the next week. Next weekend, even this morning, let me back up there. In just a few minutes, we're going to have our focus time. And for for today, we're going to be dedicating that to allowing our children to minister to us. And there will be visitors here. There will be family members here. Greet them. And let them know how happy you are to see them and that they're part of our body this morning. And then next weekend is a big weekend for us. It's the, it's the weekend right before Christmas, of course. And then on the 24th, on Christmas Eve, at 7 o'clock that night. We'll all be together for one service, one candlelight service, 7 p.m. on the 24th. So I encourage you to take advantage of that. And hey, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, it is before you we bow our hearts. Lord, we're waiting for you to work. What else can we do? We can produce nothing on our own. We can't produce righteousness. We can't produce followers. We can't even produce a willingness in our own heart to chase after you, Lord. You work in us the, the will to follow you. So, Father, it is with that kind of heart that we bow before you in prayer, we wait for you to work. Lord, the world waited for you to come to earth. Literally for thousands of years, men stumbled around in their sin waiting for one day when you would send the Christ. And you did. And now, Lord, we wait for you to come again. And we're excited for that moment when you, the trumpet call, will sound and you will come to get your body. And we will experience in real time, Emmanuel, God with us. When you will reign over this world. Physically literally, from a throne. So today, Lord, we ask you to speak to our hearts, to give us the sense of your word, to allow us to hear from your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would have walked into the Hagerstown Mall in the 90s, okay? Were any of you alive then? Some of us were. If you would have walked into the Hagerstown Mall, um... You could have come upon a, a, a display right in the middle of the mall, and they were selling some books, and they were selling some posters. How many remember what I'm getting going to talk about right now? Okay. Remember these things? This was a book that was sold in 1993, first published in 1993, called Magic Eye. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for 73 weeks. And the contents of this book became the, the topic of an episode on the show Ellen, on the show Seinfeld, on the show Friends. These things like took off across America for a short period of time. Again, do you remember these? How many again remember these? Do you remember what they were called? Say it in your mind. You remember? Well, let me show you an example. It's called a stereogram. Anybody remember that word? And this is an actual stereogram. Now, here's what you do. If you look at that, and this does work on the screen. And if you want to try it, I left one over there. Okay, it's at the welcome table. You can check it out afterwards. This actual one, okay, I'll give you a hint. It has something to do with our church, okay? And here's the whole idea. If you stare at this in just the right way, and what do you? for those of you who know, what do you kind of have to do with your eyes? You have to kind of cross your eyes just a little bit. Remember that? And all of a sudden, you, you just see these pebbles, and all of a sudden, just boom. You can see. Can anybody see it right now? Oh, we have some people. All right. Yes. You must be experienced stereogrammers, okay? Because once you can do it, some of you are looking at. You are like, I don't see nothing but rocks. I see little pretty pebbles. Once you can do it, it's like you can't help but doing it. You know. So some of you you, you, you spent all of those teen years or 20 years or 30 years, however old you were in the 90s, and, and you had a bunch of these, and you're really good at it now. You can see the picture within the picture. All right, you've had some time. How many, how many got it to work? Raise your hand again. Raise your hand. How many? How many? Okay, three. All right, well, it's over there. You can check it out in just a minute. Here's why I want to use this example. The Lord is like that thing in a lot of ways. God is like that magic eye stereogram in a lot of ways. It's kind of an analogy, just a simple analogy about our God and how he works. There are people, the vast majority of people, broad is the road to destruction. There are people that can read Matthew chapter 2, that can hear God's word proclaimed, And it just goes right over their head. They don't see anything. They look at this picture and they don't see anything. But there are others. It's nothing special about you. It's not that you're smarter or you're prettier or you're faster or you're better or you're more godly. It's simply that God has done a miracle in your life. And 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says that the truth of God is spiritually discerned. And so when you read Matthew 2, or when you hear Matthew 2 proclaimed or preached about, it's like you see the picture within the picture. And this goes on throughout all of our lives. Just this week, just this week, I had three different people speak to me of something that they saw in creation, and they said it shouted to them about our Lord and God. One person talked about the beautiful sky in the morning. They saw that and they were like, I just thought, God is good. Another person talked about a a, a lion that they saw on television and it was crouching real slowly through the weeds to pounce on some antelope or something. And they talked about spiritual truth, how that spoke to their heart. And another person talked about how a friend of theirs just really encouraged them with truth all three of those people spoke about how God was working in their lives through everyday events. And I thought of our passage today. And I thought of Psalm 19, verse 1. It says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. But it's remarkable. People can hear the word of God and their response can be starkly different. Some people, when they're exposed to truth about God, they, it's, it's their, their response is worship. They want to worship the Lord. God is good. Look at that sky. Our God is so great. But there's a whole other group of people. And this was you. Understand, apart from God working in your life, this would be you and me. When exposed to truth of God, many people respond either with anger or apathy. Get away from you with that God talk, or I really don't care. We're going to look today at the day that Jesus arrived on the earth. We're going to focus again on one of the nativity narratives and what's striking about it is the vast majority of people, the, the masses who were aware that the Christ had arrived, really didn't care. They either responded with apathy or anger. But there were a few who worshipped. So today we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna trust that God is going to allow us to see truth through a whole new set of eyes. And this has been my prayer for you this Sunday morning. This has been my prayer. That you and I, that God would work in our hearts, that we would comprehend, this is Ephesians 3, that we would comprehend the, the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ. This has been my prayer for our church today. That we would understand the depth and the length and the width and the height of the love of Christ. That God moved to speak to humans. And we're going to see it in Matthew chapter 2. Go with me to Matthew chapter 2 and let's start reading there. Um, We're going to jump in here at verse number 1. Here's what it says. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold... Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Close quote. Verse 3. When Herod heard, when Herod the king, that is, heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Until it came to rest over the place where the child was when they saw the star they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and going into the house they saw the child with Mary his mother and they fell down and worshiped him and they opened their treasures and offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod they departed to their own country by another way Now, we're going to skip verses 13 through 15 for today, so let's go down to verse 16 just to hear how this account wraps up. Now, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Rama weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, in reality, when you set up your little nativity display, okay, and you've got your shepherds and the, the, the donkey and, you know, the sheep and Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus, in reality, if you're going to actually, you know, align with what really happened in history. Somebody said, you should probably put those shepherds about four blocks away. I'm sorry, the wise men about four blocks away. Because in reality, this passage in Matthew chapter 2 is happening probably about two years after the night that Jesus was born. Did you realize that? Yeah, the wise men weren't there that night, okay? They probably started traveling shortly after that. and It would have taken them literally months to journey to Bethlehem. So Matthew chapter 2 is actually it's jumping right in the middle of Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, the other narrative of the Christmas night, it describes that the night that Jesus was born, when there was no room for him in the inn and the, the manger and all that kind of stuff. And then after that, Joseph and Mary took the baby Jesus to the temple to fulfill the law and all those kinds of things. But this is probably two years later. Two years later, this event occurred. There are several clues in the text, and I'll just mention them, just in case you're interested. First of all, it says that Joseph and Mary are now in a house. They're in a house. They're not in the stable anymore. Okay, you can see that in verse number eleven. Secondly, the word used for for Jesus isn't the word for infant. It's the word for a child, a toddler or older. He's no longer an infant. He's now a child. Thirdly, the wise men who traveled from Persia, we'll talk about that in a little bit, it would have taken them months to make this journey. But lastly, and probably the most convincing argument of all, is the reality that Herod understood it had been two years since this child had been born. In reality, there's there's a lot of things we don't understand about the Christmas narrative. We miss so many details. But what Matthew wants us to understand is that Jesus is the King of the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth, Matthew is writing to to help us understand that Jesus of Nazareth, catch that, Jesus of Nazareth, raised in Nazareth, known as from Nazareth was born in Bethlehem. Matthew was trying to help us understand that Jesus fulfilled the prophecy given about him in the book of Micah. So he's explaining to us how this came to be. How did Jesus end up in, in Bethlehem? And, and how did the events of this sort of occur? And so Matthew's now filling in some of the gaps for us. But here's what we need to understand today, and here's here's going to be our main point as we try to understand this passage it's the wonder that God communicates with us, the miracle of God's revelation, the miracle that God has chosen to speak to our hearts. You don't find God on your own. The arrogance of that, the insanity of that to think that we can look inside of ourselves and answer the eternal questions. Consider that for just a moment. And all the the idea in the world today of of people who who are spiritually minded and are searching for God. When we search on our own or inside of our own, we find nothing but idolatry. God must work for us to move. Towards him, And he is working mightily into people's lives in this passage. And in others, we're going to see that he doesn't. So let's start in the verse number one and try to understand some of the details here of this passage. We're, we're going we're to look really at this passage, at, at the events here that happened on this night, two years after the birth of Christ, kind of through Three lenses. Okay, we're going to look at three lenses. First of all, we're going to look at the, through the lens of the wise men. Okay, so let's talk about them for just a little bit. Verse number one, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold, wise men, your, your Bible may say magi, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and they said, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, there's a lot of traditions about these three people in reality. We don't know there were three. There might have been three. There might have been 300. We don't know. I sang a song when, at my church when I was about in fourth grade, okay? A solo. I had the frankincense verse. Remember that? We three kings. And I, used to, I thought it was we three kings of, I'm going to stop singing, orientar. I was like, what's this orientar? What is this, some country? We three kings of Orient. Are remember that? I totally miss there's there's so many things we misunderstand about this. For like were they kings? Were there three of them? Were they from the Orient? What does all this mean? Much of this is tradition that people have kind of sort of made the story, I don't know, more, more able to handle it. They can they can grasp it better through church history. People have tried to give the names of these guys, we don't know who they were. We don't know anything but this. This is all we have about them. So a lot of traditions have, have kind of grown up. Now some of it is very valid speculation. Some of it's very valid. They came from the east. The passage says that. I think it's a good guess that they came from Persia. Now why would I say that? Because when it says the wise men, it doesn't mean that these were guys who really knew how life worked. It doesn't mean that they were men full of wisdom. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that they had a lot of the proverbs memorized. That's not what it means. This is a group of people. They filled a role in Persia, and they were called the wise men or the magicians. Now they didn't use magic like pulling a rabbit out of the hat. That's not what they did. Okay, that's not what the, that's not what magi meant. What it meant was, in Persia, and even before that in Babylon, they were a group of people who used pagan religion to predict the future. That's what they did. That's what they did. Now, what we come to understand from this passage is somehow these magicians, in the biblical sense of the word, okay, these wise men, somehow they became aware of this promise of God, of Yahweh, of the God of the Old Testament, that he would send one to the earth. And they even had figured out in Numbers chapter 24 that when he comes, some bright light, this pastor calls it a star in ESV, would foretell his coming. Now let me me take a wild guess at how they figured this out. They didn't know everything, by the way. They didn't know Micah, right? They didn't know. They come asking, Where is the child to be born? The chief priest, the scribe saved Bethlehem. But they knew a star, a bright light, meant that this God was sending one. My personal opinion is that Daniel, Daniel, our man Daniel in Babylon had infected them with truth about God. Let me show you that, just so you know I'm not just making it up, okay? Go to Daniel chapter 6. Keep your finger there. Go with me to Daniel chapter 6. Actually, for the sake of time, we'll just do one. Go to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. Let me show you this, that Daniel was involved. Struggling to find Daniel right now. Good gracious. Daniel chapter 2 is where I want to be. Look at verse number 48. We'll use one verse. Daniel chapter 2, verse number 48. Now, you know this story. okay? This is Daniel in in the nation of Babylon taken captive. He is a slave, and God blessed him and raised him up into a position of power. Look at verse number 48. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the, what's it say? Wise men of Babylon. Again, this is not guys full of wisdom. These aren't guys who quote the Proverbs. This is a technical word identifying a group of people. And Daniel is now their boss. And Daniel, the follower of Yahweh, infected them with truth, so that six hundred years later, they stumble into Jerusalem, saying, "Where is this Christ?" Awesome. Now let's go back to Matthew chapter two and let's let's see their quest. Okay. So it says here in in verse number one that they come from the east, okay, and it says, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. I don't believe this is a star. The word here for star can be translated star. It's where we get our word asteroid, okay? Now, is an asteroid a star? Where's the scientist in the room? No, it's not. But what is an asteroid? It's a bright light in the sky. That's all this word is. It means a bright light in the sky. That's all it means. So the wise men who are in Persia, hundreds of miles away, see a bright light. And they put it together in their mind, Numbers 24, what Daniel had told us, this must be the Christ. And away they go. I believe what this is is exactly what we saw in Luke's account when the angels came and worshiped the Lord. And they with them was a bright light as they worshiped. And the the wise men from a distance and the chief priests and all of Jerusalem saw this light and knew something was going on. And many could care less but not the wise men. And so they come to Jerusalem, and notice what they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They knew that there would be a king that would rise out of this people of God. And what's interesting about this is you do not see this term king of the Jews. You will not see this term used again in the the gospel of Matthew to Matthew chapter 27. You say, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you who it is that says it. His name is Pilate. He says, are you the king of the Jews? And then a few verses later, after they strike Jesus, the the religious scholars of the day, and they they hit him and they, they pull out his beard, they say, hail, king of the Jews. Look what it took took a people hundreds of miles away who were not followers of Yahweh. God had to bring them from afar and say, this is the king of the Jews. And they come to this baby. And look what it says in verse number two. We saw the star rose have come to worship him. Notice what happens here and compare that with how we approach God. When the wise men come to this infant, they come to give. They don't come to get. Please, consider that. Allow God's spirit to convict your heart. Why do you come to God? Why do you come to worship? Why do you come to Jesus? Is it to get? Is it give me more? Oh God, bless me more. Bless me more. Give me heaven. Give me all these things. Give me, give me, give me, give me. Like a spoiled child on Christmas morning. Where's the next present? Where's the next present? Tearing into him, Right? Not the wise men. These guys came to give. They came to give. Because Jesus is so great. Because God is so great. Because he is so awesome. Because he is the one that I've been made to worship. Worship is giving. That's what worship is. They traveled hundreds of miles at great expense to give. Oh. Very challenging truth about the Christmas narrative. And let's go ahead now and get even more challenging. Let's change, our, let's change our lens. Let's look at Herod. It's in the days of Herod the king that these wise men come, verse number one. And in verse number three, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Now, what's troubling him? What's troubling him is there's a group, a caravan of Persians who have now come into his kingdom. It's funny. He wasn't troubled by the bright light two years earlier, at least not in a way that lasted. That's kind of wore off. See, that's what man-made religion does. It wears off with time. Let me tell you about King Herod. King Herod was a madman, okay? He was an absolute madman, a megalomaniac, they would call him. He rose into power, his family rose into power in 167 BC when the Jews revolted against the Greeks and won back the temple. And that is why the Jews today celebrate Hanukkah, okay? And so what happened is, he was not a Jewish man, but in 63 B.C., so about 100 years after the Jews revolted against the Greeks, the Romans came to Jerusalem and stamped out the Jews. And now the Romans have a problem. It's too far from home for us to let this thing go. We need a king. And we need a king that the Jews will accept, but who will be our puppet. And so they found Herod, an Edomite Edomite, a descendant of Edom and a descendant of Esau, not a Jewish man. Herod was not a Jew, but yet he is the king of the Jews. He's a puppet. He's a tool of Rome. And his his role is to keep the people of Israel at bay. They've been fighting against people for a hundred years. A hundred years when when his family takes over. Now this particular Herod ruled from 37 to 4 BC, about 30 years. And again, a megalomaniac, he did wicked things. Killed his own wife and their two sons. Got very, very sick at the end of his life. And here's what he did. Here's the kind of man this guy is. So when it became clear that he was going to die... He demanded that all of his soldiers go throughout Israel and get all the religious leaders and all the community leaders of Israel and bring them to Jerusalem and lock them there in his Colosseum. And the command was this. Herod says, when I die, all of you soldiers go into the Colosseum and kill them all so they'll be grieving across Israel at my death. That's who this man was. Right before his death, Five days before he died, he called his oldest son, who who stood to inherit the, the throne, and had him killed. Just out of meanness, that's who this guy is. Now, I'm not surprised at his response. He's troubled. He's troubled. Because this is a problem he's got to stamp out. King of the Jews? What are you talking about? I'm the king of the Jews. Hmm, interesting. Very Interesting. But he's not the only one who's troubled. All of Israel is, all of Jerusalem is with him. Why? I think in reality, most of them, they they knew what this would mean. King Herod is going to be a tirade. And their their troubled nature, their their troubled spirit, was simply out of self-preservation. So Herod calls to, verse four, the chief priest And the scribes. Now, who are these guys? Third lens. These are the religious scholars. And I want you to see that they received Jesus not. John 1, Jesus says, I came to my own, and my own received me not. So the magi show up in Jerusalem and they say, Where is the king of the Jews to be born? It it messes with Herod, so he calls in his advisors. He's not Jewish. He calls in his Jewish advisors, the chief priests and the scribes. By the way, these are two political parties that hated one another. They hated one another, but now they work together because they got a problem. So I picture them off in this little like room, okay? You know, cigar smoke, settled across the room, and, and you're there with the Torah, you know, figure out, where is, the, where is the Messiah coming? And they find Micah 5. O oh, you, and you, O oh, Bethlehem. In the land of Judah. These religious scholars are are forerunners of the very people who would deny Jesus, the very people who would call for his crucifixion, the very people who had the truth of God and rejected him. Keep your finger here and go to Romans 9. Go to Romans 9 with me. Look what Paul says about these people and be warned, be warned today that exposure to truth is no guarantee. It is no guarantee of acceptance. Exposure to truth is no guarantee of acceptance of truth. Romans chapter 9, Paul says, I am just burdened for my countrymen. He says in verse number one, if it were up to me, Paul says, I'd go to hell if it meant that my kinsmen, my family, would accept Jesus as their Messiah. And in verse number four, if you're there, here's how he describes him. He says, they're Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. They have so much wealth. But jump down to verse number 31 and see what the problem is. See what the problem is. Verse number 31 of chapter 9. But Israel, Paul writes in verse 31, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Man, that is a great question. That is a great it, It is worthy of a pregnant pause. Why? Why can someone have so much knowledge? Why could someone in this room maybe know all the Christmas story, know all the truth of the Bible, and not be redeemed? How can this happen? Paul answers. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Oh, there's the great stumbling block of man. There it is. See, here's what man thinks. If you allow man, you, to reveal to yourself truth, you will always work your way to God. You will always try to be good enough for God to accept. This is the, this is the default position of man. We always try to make ourselves acceptable to God, to, to be good enough, to, to follow enough rules, to follow enough law. And God says, you can't do that. You only come by grace. Matthew chapter 2. Go ahead and turn back there. The problem with these religious scholars, it was not that they weren't exposed to truth. My goodness, the wise men from 500 miles away responded to the truth that God had given them and stumbled their way into Jerusalem saying, where is the king? Where is the king? These chief priests and scribes are literally five miles away. Bethlehem is five miles away from Jerusalem, and they don't bother to get on a camel and go check it out for themselves. Why? Because a Christ born to impoverished people in the little podunk town of Bethlehem can't be our king because I'm too great to accept him. Listen, you guys, Jesus came humbly to serve. These chief, these chief priests and scribes would not be served. Too proud to be served by the Christ. So they received him not, they would not believe. So exposure to truth, listen, be warned, be warned. Exposure to truth? There are people that quote this passage from Isaiah, that the word of God will not return void. And oh, that is true. But read it in context. Read it in context. For many, the non-void return of God's word is nothing but judgment. Judgment. Be warned. Be warned. Exposure to truth it must be coupled with a humble response, a need, a desire for, a hunger for. Oh God, do this work in me. I need a Christ. I need a Messiah. I need saved. And that's where Matthew takes us. Don't forget As you go back to Matthew chapter two, if you're not there already, go ahead and get there. Don't forget what Matthew is doing. Matthew's not writing a history book, okay? This is not the history of Jesus. Matthew has a point. And his point is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and he came to serve and to give his life for a ransom. That's his point. The whole point is he's the Christ. He's the king. He's the one sent. So he is writing the the whole time. Matthew has an agenda. When he wrote this, when you read it, know the agenda going in. Matthew's trying to convince you, just like I'm trying to convince you, just like the Spirit of God may be trying to convince your heart, this is truth. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the King. I'm not sharing history with you. I'm calling you to submit, to bow the knee to the King. It's the best for you to worship Him in that way, to bow before Him as the King. And so what Matthew is going to do one of many times here, he's going to reach back into history and grab a passage of scripture from the Old Testament that proves this is the Messiah. And he goes to the book of Micah. Not only in Micah, but also what he does, is he takes a quote from Micah in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse number 2. You should write that down and check it out. He takes Micah 5 2 and 2 Samuel 5 2 and jams them together and gives us this Oh, you and you, O Bethlehem and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler and this last phrase is out of 2 Samuel who will shepherd my people Israel. See here's where we need to go. To scripture, to, to Jesus as the king of kings. Bethlehem. You know what that word means? This is kind of neat. Bethlehem means house of bread. Jesus is the bread of heaven, born in the house of bread. Small little town, probably less than 300 people. It's a nowhere in, the, in, the, in a holla behind Jerusalem, okay? And that's why Matthew adds a word to Micah. If you look back at Micah chapter 5 and compare it to Matthew chapter 2, this is a free quotation is what it's called. So Matthew is not saying this is exactly word for word what Micah said. He's given a free quotation from Micah. And he adds things to help us understand the point that God is making. See, the Holy Spirit's allowed to do that. Holy Spirit wrote Micah. Holy Spirit wrote Matthew. And he says, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you'll see it's a little different there in Micah. There's actually four changes in this as quoted to five. Three of them are insignificant, no more than translation errors. But here's one that is significant. Are by no means Least among the rulers of Judah, Bethlehem, you are now a big deal because in you was born the Christ. So we sing songs about Bethlehem today, 2,000 years later. What a humble beginning, but a royal identity. From you shall come a ruler, and notice what kind of ruler he is he's a shepherd. He's a shepherd. Now, this is this is reaching back. Remember, who is the greatest shepherd in Israel's history? Huh? Huh? Yeah, David. That's exactly right. And the 2 Samuel 5 passage that, my, that Matthew is grabbing is talking about David. So again, Matthew is saying, this is one in the line of David, the great king, the ruler over Israel the one that God used, the king. This is the king of kings. This child lying in this little girl's arms is the shepherd. And what will he do? He will be a shepherd of his people. Matthew is doing many things here. He's showing us that this is the Christ, for one thing. Secondly, he's telling us what kind of ruler Jesus will be. A shepherd, protector, provider. But also I believe, now listen to this, very important, very important. Also he is drawing a contrast between the, quote, king of Israel and the king of Israel. Herod is gonna take this moment And march soldiers into Bethlehem and kill all the children, male children, two years and under in Bethlehem and the surrounding region. He's supposed to be the shepherd over Israel. He's supposed to be the king of Israel. This is the way human kings do, you guys. This is what human kings do. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when the president looks after his own needs. Don't be surprised when the king tries to cover his own backside. Don't be surprised when your boss or your teacher or your parent does something you don't like. This is the way that human authority always is. But we submit to them because we submit to God. But he alone, he alone is worthy. He alone is worthy to be our shepherd. So let's just go through the rest of the story. I I need to move along here pretty quick. Seven through twelve, you, we saw we read it earlier that the wise men they figure out what Herod is after. God then declares to them to leave, and so in verse number eleven they see the star. By the way, the star has not been there. Okay, verse number ten that is the star appeared when Jesus was born and then it was gone. Verse number ten says this star appeared again. So it's not like it's been been above Mary and Joseph's house, but all of a sudden it appears. They're in Jerusalem and leads them to Bethlehem. And when they get there, they worship. All right, let me just say a couple words, things that we can apply from this. You know, I, I just thought, you know, sought the Lord on what are, we, what are we supposed to gather from this? And I think a key theological truth that we must understand is the truth of God's revelation. The truth of God's revelation that, that God does this work where he allows us to see who he is. He works, he does this miracle in our lives. I I gave you a little bit of a theological study you can do this week in your quiet time. I don't have time to hit it now, but there's really two aspects of God's revelation. First of all, we have what's called his universal revelation. His universal revelation that God reveals to all people that he exists. He reveals to all people that he exists. We see that in the creation around us, in the sky and the mountain and the trees and in your body. He exists. The heavens declare the glory of God. Everyone around you can see that he exists. But also in your time this week, as you, as you work through those passages that I've, that I've shared with you, I want you to see another truth. That God works in a special way and speaks to people's hearts. In a particular people, in a, with a particular time, in a, in a particular place, God works. He does it through His words. He may be doing it right now. And here's the truth about special revelation. So this is the idea that God does this work in people's lives. And he reaches down in a way into our lives and grabs our hearts and says, listen, this is truth. This is truth. Hear this now. But the thing about special revelation is I cannot guarantee that you will receive it tomorrow. If God is grabbing your heart today, respond respond. Because there is no, I can guarantee you until Jesus comes back and even beyond, there will be general revelation. The sun's gonna come up tomorrow and people across the planet are gonna say, there's gotta be a God. But in your heart today, Jesus may be calling to you and saying, I am the Christ. I am the king. Respond. Let's go to him in prayer now. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for your truth. Lord, that you call us to listen, to hear, to respond, to worship. We saw a group of people that did that here, but we saw a large mass of people that didn't. Jesus, you are calling us to worship you today, and I pray we would. you are God with us part of that presence is the miracle of you speaking to our heart. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.